Welcome to the Armed and Ready Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Wood, the VA Loan Guy. We have a really exciting episode coming up for you. Come check it out. Welcome to another episode of the Armed and Ready Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Wood, the VA Loan Guy. Today, we have Army veteran and co-CEO of Aptera Motors, Steve Fambro, with us. And we're super excited to share his story with you. He's got a lot of cool stuff, some neat experiences, too, that we were just chatting about. So, um, so Steve, thanks for coming on the show, and, and welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, tell us a little bit about, you know, your, your, your rise, right? You, you got your in the Army, and now you're co-CEO of, of a company. So, there's obviously quite a lot of story there, right? Um, so tell us a little bit about just joining the army. What was the kind of the thought process that got you interested in the military and had just, you know, raise your right hand and join? Gosh, um, I was 17 years old when I joined. And at the time, I just wasn't put together for college. You know, I, I didn't have a, a sophisticated math in high school. I took basic courses and I didn't have the self-discipline to even ask my parents to waste their money on me going to college at that point. And uh, so for me, the military felt like a way to learn some new skills or learn skills, learn discipline, and um, and then see where it takes me. Uh, because anything could be better than staying in the little small town in Georgia uh, where I was, looking at the opportunities I would have there. And so uh, I did some research and I found the job that uh, I'm ashamed to admit the job that I thought would keep me the most comfortable at uh, a constant 72 degrees and <laughs> no humidity, you know, uh, nice warm conditions. And that was a calibration lab. And so I went to, I signed up for, to be a calibration specialist. And I went to electronic school for about nine months at Lowry Air Force Base okay. and um, did my rest of my three years or so uh, ending in Germany and got out and stayed in Germany. And I worked for uh, a German company, Motorola, uh, who repaired, I repaired walkie talkies and things like that for the military police. Oh, nice. uh, and I did that for a couple of years before I moved back to the U.S. and later went to school on the GI Bill. And uh, university, my, my university education, my Bachelor of Science, Electrical Engineering was what really opened the second door of my life. I'd say the people in the military opened the first door uh, you walk through that door. When you when you go through it, you learn self discipline, follow through. Uh, you have your ego sort of conditioned to not be so big, yeah. uh, so that you can learn new things. And then the second door was university, and that opened up a whole new world for me. And um, biotech after that, and about five years into biotech, uh, I got bored and sold my stock and started the the first version of Aptera. That was back in two thousand six. Wow. And um, a lot happened since then. And Chris and I left the company, uh, but we restarted the company uh, just last year. Tell me, what is a calibration specialist in the Army? I've never even heard of that job before. What, what did you guys do? We adjusted weapons of war to make sure that they hit their target. So okay. if you think about um, something as simple, simple as a torque wrench on a helicopter, okay. um, the bolt on the rotor blade has a very specific torque value. And if it's over torqued or under torque, maybe the rotor blade could come off. And so how do you make sure those torque wrenches are calibrated so that when you click hundred foot pounds, it really is hundred and not 120 or something like that. Sure. So every instrument in the military that measures something, whether it's temperature, frequency, voltage, torque, 
um, they have standards that they compare them against to make sure that they are indicating what they're really measuring. Oh, wow. And there's entire infrastructure of people to collect that equipment, to calibrate it, certify it, and bring it back to the customer. And, uh, and that's what I, that's what I learned to do. It was a great job. That's cool. I've never even heard of that. So, I mean, it makes sense now that you explained that we have that, that role, but, um, that's really cool. So you, we were talking before the show a little bit about, um, just your experience and you got to be stationed in Germany and obviously you get some time off to explore Europe and stuff like that. And, um, you're telling me about just some of the cool places. I know we were talking about, you know, Greece and and Crete and some of the cool cool spots. Um, so tell me a little bit about um, your travels and things in Europe. What did you What did you get to experience there while you're in the army? When I when I was stationed in Germany, then when I got out, uh, so I was in Germany for about five years total. Uh, I was stationed in Frankfurt or Frankfurt, as they would say. <laughs> and um, uh, when, uh, gosh, I. I Went to just about every country there in the Western, you know, Western Europe at the time because okay. the Berlin Wall was still up. There was still a Soviet Union. There was still a communist East Germany. And um, a few months, maybe it was a few months, sometime after I got out is when the Berlin Wall fell. And that day, I happened to be visiting uh, the German town, actually ancient Roman town in Germany of Trier. Uh, most people remember, you know, the Romans made it up into, I think, uh, the Rhine and so they couldn't cross any further than that because those pesky Germanic tribes, you know, kept them from doing so. Right, right. But Trier is also uh, the place of the Karl Marx house, I guess the birthplace of Karl Marx, the founder of communism. Wow. And I'd went to this museum just on a tour, like with a tour bus with a bunch of other people, purely random. And so it was that day, I was in the hotel room, and I remember just turn on the TV and see that the Berlin Wall fell. And I thought, how auspicious was it that we were visiting, you know, the Karl Marx house that right. day. And that was the day that the wall fell. So a few months after that, uh, my mom had come to visit me and, and we drove to Eastern Germany. I'd never been. And it was, you know, they, it was just a few months after. So the, there were still Soviet troops there. And I, you know, keep in mind in the army, I'd never seen a Soviet soldier that, that were my enemy. You know, that's what we were training against. Uh, the pictures they would show you of the enemy was always Soviet soldiers and Soviet gear. And so then to suddenly see them, but to know that, uh, like, not really understand, like, wait, are they a threat? Are they, you know, I, I don't that get it. That must have been really uncomfortable for a minute, huh? Yeah, I couldn't process it. But it was, um, it was amazing. It was like going back in time 50 years. Because as soon as you turn off the Autobahn in East, former Eastern Germany, uh, the roads instantly went to dirt. And, oh, wow. and you go maybe over out of view of the highway, the Autobahn, and go into some random town. And the buildings look like they haven't changed since the 1940s. The, the plaza was dirt. The buildings were unpainted and sort of the half timber mud, you know, mud brick or mud um, thatch construction. It was, uh, it, it was depressing to think that that's how this whole country was living. You know, most people didn't really understand it because it was a closed country. You couldn't get in there. But, right. you know, people were trying to also get out at the same time. So they built a wall. It's like going, it's like Back to the Future, like yeah. a movie kind of, you know. Wow, that's really interesting. So, um, so when you were done in the army, um, what did you do after that? What was your transition into the civilian sector? After the army, uh, as I said, I, I went to work. The first thing I did, I actually went to work for a contractor doing the same job I did in the military. Okay, uh, but which is for, pretty common. A lot of guys yeah. contract doing the same thing, right? But it was it was like triple the pay. 
and and without having to dress up like a tree every day, you know. <laughs> right. uh, and so that was that was an interesting part of my life uh, because I I got to ride the uh, the U-Bahn and the S-Bahn, the, the tram and underground train to work every day, hmm. uh, which was I'd ride my ten speed to the station. I would read the newspaper on the train and and then walk a mile to the office. So I was very fit. You just from going to work and doing, not going to the gym or anything. Right. Um, and, uh, and that contract ended after about, um, I don't know, a year or so. And, uh, and that was about the time I went back in the U S and a couple of years after back in the U S floundering, you know, deciding what I wanted to do. I, I tried programming. I was good at it. I liked it. I made a living, uh, even working for myself. I worked for another calibration lab and I thought I really, you know, I don't want to work on, electronic equipment diet because i had it it was a hobby of mine I, I would make circuits and projects and things so i wanted to design it i wanted to be an engineer and um and so that's when i went to the university i was living in utah at the time okay and um went to the veterans department said okay what do i need to do and uh i remember that it was, i never forget this they printed out a list of all the classes and so i didn't understand when she handed me this tablet uh, booklet of paper I thought I was just supposed to go through and maybe check the classes that I wanted to take or something like this. And so I said, right. well, how do I decide? How do I know if I want that math or this math? And, and she laughed at me. She said, oh, no, you're, you're taking all of them. You know, those are, <laughs> and I, I remember I was just uh, not quite, I wasn't paralyzed, but I was just, I was, I was taken aback with like how much of a commitment this is going to be. This is going to be five years of my life. But, you know, it starts with the first class. So I said, you know, if I at least take one class, I'll be one class closer. And right. And I did. And five years later, um, I graduated. So. so University of Utah or Utah State? University of Utah. All right. Go Utes. Yeah, go Utes. Um, I'm sure fun rivalry there, too, with uh, the neighboring college or Utah State a little bit. You know, they say that. Uh, they also say about Utah that has really good snow. I can tell you if you're in the electrical engineering program, probably at any university, you've got no time for sports, no time for skiing. Uh, I always thought, you know, when I went to um, when I went to lunch, the, the the quad at the university, the area where all the buildings meet, it's kind of like a natural congregation area. Right. There's students playing Frisbee and hacky sack. And I always thought, it's like, who are these students? I, how can they have time to do that? You know, I don't have time to do that. I don't even have time to eat. Um, but uh, it was uh, not enough time for any of those kind of diversions. It was it was literally study and uh, and uh, work the night job and the GI Bill uh, to get through it. So yeah, well, engineering is not easy. Um, that's that's a tough curriculum, whether it's electrical or mechanical or civil or whatever it is. That's a lot of math, right? And a lot of commitment. You know, it's it's learnable. Uh, and I thought when I left university, and it was an electrical engineering degree is a great toolbox for solving all kinds of problems. But electronics and physics and uh, and those sorts of things are are numbers that are they're understandable. You can learn them. I found once I got into business and and after my first startup, uh, the hard part wasn't that. The, the hard part was people, and it wasn't like in the military. You know, there's no uh, there's no fixed regimented uh, dominance structure. You instead have to coerce and use rhetoric to get people to do stuff. And, right, and yeah. getting people to do stuff was far more complicated than designing circuits, I thought. So people people is what they should teach in university. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's the the untaught subject, right? right. And a critical one when you're going into business. Absolutely, sure. absolutely. So I'm interested to know a little bit, you know, I see oftentimes, you know, on LinkedIn, you know, founders of companies or you hear on the news and, you know, they they started a company and they had to do a capital raise and and they raised X millions of dollars and they got, you know, their first level of funding and they're working on it till they get to a point where they need more funding and, you know, it kind of keeps growing like that. And um, I'm always interested to understand, like, how do you go about like, fundraising for that kind of thing. It's it's more than just calling your friends and your buddies like, hey, can you throw in a few bucks? Like, I mean, we're talking big dollars, you know, mm -hmm. to build a corporation, you need millions of dollars. What does that look like? How, how do you start going after that and create that picture? There's several ways. Uh, I took probably the hardest path. <clears throat> I'd say the easiest path, the first path would be connections. So if you're graduating from Stanford or MIT, you're swimming in an ecosystem of people who are founders or no founders or, or no people who've exited their companies uh, and, and can make those connections, those, those introductions to VCs and, and whatnot. And so being in an ecosystem like that is one way of doing it. Um, when Aptera first started, we weren't in that ecosystem. Uh, we simply did a press release and the right investor reached out to us and found us. It was pure luck. Wow. And then that got us into the ecosystem. Uh, so they're the club, if you want to call it. Um, now it's, and, and that was the first time around was over 10 years ago. Now it's very different. You know, we're not uh, beating feet on Sand Hill Road, talking to VCs. You know, we don't have to right now. There's a lot of interest in people competing for our attention now just by virtue of what we've done and virtue of the product and the company. Really lucky. I mean, it, it's the timing is great and, and the, the product is great and it, all that's just worked out to our advantage. But the, to answer your question, the first way I'd say is connections. The second way is maybe being able to demonstrate uh, not only momentum, but but gravitas. You know, it's not it's not maybe what it, what you're trying to raise money for is not just an idea or concept, but it's something that people can really see, something that people can internalize. Um, you know, people are visual creatures. So when I had first started the company, I didn't get, I didn't place the right emphasis on showing people what the vehicle would look like. I had calculations and I had some engineering drawings and things like this, but uh, a, a friend of mine who was a CEO of, of a company at the time, he, he said, people, they want to see something. They want to see the vehicle. What's it going to look like? You know, spend, spend some money, have it, have someone do a rendering and, and make it look, you know, proper. Yeah. And uh, again, that was the original time around 10 years ago, but I did that. And that was the image that uh, the person that found us saw. And it, it instantly caused him to see, you know, see the article, see us, call, get in touch with us, find us. And, and that's how it happened. So, so the second answer is, uh, momentum and gravitas, you know, make it believable, show people how this thing, this idea is going to work. Uh, it can't just be some papers. It needs to be something delivered with passion or something they can see and feel or experience. Um, and the third way is I'd say with, with crowdfunding, the the financial regulations evolve over time, and and the idea of crowdfunding is not something that we had access to in the first time around. Right, and it's been transformational for us because it's um, it's allowed us to to take on 
uh, more investment without, you know, with us set with us setting the valuation terms, you know, not, um, not with a gun to our head by a VC, you know, demanding, okay, how, you know, arguing with us about valuation. And so uh, that's been great to prevent the kind of dilution that a lot of companies would see in the early stage. So crowdfunding, are you guys are, are you allocating like shares to those yes, people too? So it's kind of right. like being on the market, but you're not publicly traded yet. That's right. And there's different levels of it. There's some for the sort of, um, uh, uh, what they call retail investors, okay. uh, you know, people that maybe invest in Robinhood or things like that, mm -hmm. uh, spend, have a little bit of money every month they want to put into something. Uh, and then there's different levels for people that are, um, the word escapes me, uh, that are um, accredited, accredited investors. investors yeah. uh, and so there's different levels of it, depending upon the amount of money that you're trying to raise and, um, and, uh, and your, your, your need and, um, and the appeal of your product or what you're trying to pitch. Nice. And um, so we kind of gloss right over it, but let's, let's talk about Aptera a little bit. Um, it's electric car, right? So tell us a little bit about that. I mean, now, you know, with, with Tesla's success, you know, there's a lot of attention being given to, you know, electric vehicles. Um, every motor company has some sort of version of an electric vehicle, it seems like now. And um, what do you guys have? What are you building? What's, what's so exciting about Aptera? Aptera makes a solar electric vehicle. Okay. So it's a vehicle you can plug in, but you may not ever need to. Um, in some areas like Southern California or Nevada, uh, where you're from, you could tell me, uh, you can just park it. <laughs> and you said it right. In the sun, <laughs> right? I had to catch myself. Uh, just parking it in the sun, it charges itself. Um, a lot of companies have tried putting solar cells on cars. Yeah. But since like the 70s, they've tried it, right? right. Yeah. But the problem is the cars, you know, they're big things that consume a lot of energy to move. So solar cells only add a tiny bit of energy, which is enough to really do anything useful in a typical car. Right. On the Aptera, it's enough to charge. It, you get enough charge to drive about 40 miles a day. Now, you can drive up to 1,000 miles with the battery pack that's in it. It has a 100-kilowatt-hour battery pack. There's okay. different levels. There's a, a, a 25, a 40, and a 60 in uh, a 100 kilowatt hour battery pack. And so that means that the, the lowest range Aptera will go 250 miles. The highest range will go 1,000 miles. But all of them will be able to go up to 40 miles a day on its own without having to be recharged up to 40 miles a day just by parking it in the sun. And so it gives people a freedom that if they live in an apartment building or if they live like I do with a one-car garage where my Wife and I are competing, you know, for the spot in it. Right. I may not get to charge for a couple of days. Um, it allows people to drive their twelve to 15,000 miles a year on average, which is what they drive, without having to ever plug it in. Now, sure, you want to go on a long trip or maybe go to the airport and back or something like that. You might plug it in like a normal EV. But then the thing is, uh, because it's so efficient, that whole charging plug-in experience is radically different. You don't need to install a, a fancy charger at your house. You can just plug it into a 110 outlet like you plug in your cell phone and you get 150 miles overnight. Oh, wow. Um, it, and, the, and the reason you're able to do that is because the car is so efficient. It requires so little energy to move. And we do that through like aerodynamics, advanced aerodynamics and lightweight composites. Those two things allow us to create a vehicle that's so efficient that Solar cells on the roof can give it up to 40 miles a day or plugging in it overnight through a 110 plug 
like you plug in your cell phone, can give you up to 150 miles overnight. So it's a it's a solar electric vehicle that gives people the freedom to drive whenever they want without, without having to worry about range, without having to worry about plugging in most of the time, and uh, without having to mortgage, you know, take a second mortgage on a house to afford it because it's, it's designed to be affordable because it is more efficient. It uses less resources, so it's cheaper to build. Gotcha. Um, and so are you able – does it charge while it's driving with the solar panels? Um, it, it'll use – more energy driving than it's making from charging. So it's not a perpetual motion machine, if, uh, gotcha. so to speak. But um, it'll charge up to about, in the best case conditions, up to about four kilowatt hours per day. So that's enough for it to go about 40 miles. So uh, you could certainly be driving and energy is going back into the battery, you know, slightly lower than the rate that it's going out of the battery to power the wheels. Gotcha. Uh, but pretty much whenever there's sun out, it's going to be charging. That's really cool. So what, um, you know, obviously you're making it affordable. So it's not like some of the, you know, the six figure price tag, um, EVs out there. Um, what would you say like from a size, like what kind of cars would you compare it to size wise? Well, this first vehicle, <clears throat> the Aptera that you see on the website, it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's the vanguard of the brand, right? It's the first of a product portfolio of other vehicles that are to come. So we want it to be our most efficient and to really, really be the vehicle that embodies what efficiency can mean for a person, for their life, the kind of freedom it can give. So it looks very different than anything that you've seen. Um, this particular uh, vehicle, it's about as, takes up the footprint of a Prius. You know, it's about as long as a Prius. Okay. It's about as wide as a Tesla Model S, so it's not small. Uh, seats two people side by side and uh, has more cargo room inside than just about any passenger car out there. Because it's kind of long, you know, for its for its size. Right. Uh, so you can put skis in it. You can put two-by-fours in it. You can put all kinds of stuff in it uh, without having to worry about sticking something through the window. That's cool. And it's part of that, I guess, like that, the length of the car for the panels themselves, right? To have enough surface area, I would assume? Or When I wanted to build an electric car, like a converted electric car, a long time ago, okay. uh, I looked at ones that had been built and saw that they only went 20 miles, 15 miles. And I wondered why that was. And that sent me down the rabbit hole of understanding where does all the energy go in a vehicle when you drive it. And uh, more than half the energy goes just to push the air out of the way. And so I thought, well, gosh, if you build an electric car, you know, batteries are so expensive. Um, you you want to push the least amount of air out of the way possible. So you want that thing to be really aerodynamic. What does that shape look like? How could you surround two people side by side in a shape that's really aerodynamic? And um, we we actually worked with NASA to validate that design back over 10 years ago and hired them to help us do wind tunnel analysis and oh, prove wow. it. Uh, so we could prove to investors that, Hey, NASA says it's, it's the lowest drag shape they've ever seen. Pretty hard to argue with NASA. Right. <laughs> and a wind <laughs> but, tunnel. Uh, but it's long to answer your question. It's long. It, it's the shape that it is because of aerodynamics, I because see. of physics. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so where are you guys now with the company and like production and stuff like that? We've raised, uh, I don't know, about four or so million dollars. Uh, we've delivered the first prototype, which is what we've seen in the launch video, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, we have two more that are under construction right now. Uh, they're, I wouldn't call them prototypes as much as uh, not really development vehicles, uh, not really validation vehicles, but somewhere in between the prototype and development. It's to show the concept, show the technologies on the vehicle, demonstrate that they work. Uh, but 
bits and pieces of it are not final production. You know, they're certainly prototype status, but we built one of those. Uh, it's at our facility in Vista just a few miles away, and uh, we're building the other two right now. And we should launch those sometime around February next year. Wow, that's really cool. That's awesome. So, um, and so for our audience, you know, he's, you're in, we're in, you're in San Diego mm -hmm. physically, and you've got a couple locations in the San Diego area, which is, you know, exciting for all the local people here, you know, to see, to see that because I don't know, to me, you think of like these manufacturing facilities that are way in Timbuktu and some other state that are, you know, 300,000 square feet or something like that. So right. it's pretty cool to see that it's, that it's local and this is, you know, homegrown, which is really exciting. Um, what's your guys's hope, you know, over the next five or so years with the company? We'd like to be public. We'd like to have a full product portfolio of other vehicles. So it's not just this vehicle. And uh, I think by that time, we'd like, we'd, we'd be a serious contender with anybody making electric vehicles. I think people would see us as an alternative. There's always going to be people that want a high-end luxury vehicle. There's always going to be people that want the fastest thing out there. Um, we're about giving people freedom, freedom to move, to go where they want to go, to not be encumbered by range, not be hindered by having to plug it in, and to do that at a value. And so I, I think there's always going to be a market for that. And, and uh, our goal is to be uh, growing that market in five years. Wow, that's really cool. Um, gosh, what else was I going to uh, Something came to mind. I'm drawing a blank on it now. Um, shoot, <laughs> what was I going to ask you? Um, Maybe you're oh, going to ask me. Oh, go ahead. I, would, I know. I was going to ask you about. Um, so I know, I think it was proposed, maybe it passed, but it wasn't. California was talking about by a certain date, mm -hmm. all cars need to be electric right yes um how has that i guess helped has that given you guys some lift in what you're doing or how has that law influenced what you guys are doing today i think it's one of several things around the electric vehicle space which has caused incredible interest investment interest uh, acquisition interest in electric vehicles um you know what tesla has done is amazing right they they were a california startup uh, old Detroit people like Bob Lutz made fun of them, you know, although oh, they'll never succeed. They'll be gone in a couple of years, whatever. And Tesla's cleaning their clock yeah. times 10, you know, so who, who's the expert now? You know, it's not the old Detroit companies. So they're playing catch up. Every one of them are spending their treasure to try and catch up to what Tesla's doing. I think that's their first mistake. We're not trying to catch up to anybody. We're actually looking ahead of where anybody is going and setting our targets there. And so I think, uh, I think the interest in the space uh, from, I think, the, the California ruling, I think, from the new administration, uh, the uh, focus on green energy that's invariably going to come from a new this new administration, I think, is putting more emphasis on electric vehicles, making people uh, realize that this is part of our future and and the other companies are trying to play catch up and the companies who are already doing it or focus more intently on being ahead of the game i think are as good as good position as anybody so it's it's good for the business altogether yeah i think too i mean california is like a small country as far as you know it's gross domestic product and the amount of people and everything really else is. so by by having that deadline of, you know, all these vehicles have to be electric or something. I, I've got to imagine that's that's going to be one great sample size for everybody who is now joining in that EV space. I mean, you guys particularly. Um, but um, that's really exciting. That's really cool. And I think, you know, you're talking earlier about 
having a, a visual, you know, we're, we're all visual creatures. Um, and as we were talking about Tesla, it, it made me think about electric vehicles, you know, Tesla's versus some of the others and stuff. And, and over time, you know, Tesla came out with a cool, sexy looking car and everyone else who made an electric vehicle made this funky, ugly monkey, but it was electric and it plugged in. And to me, it's kind of like a no brainer, like, yeah, their technology and everything's cool, but they made something that just looked a lot better right. than everyone else. And now you're all trying to play catch up to the technology, the way that it looks, all the right. rest of the stuff, like so far behind the game. And I always wondered, you know, and I'd see some electric car or hybrid driving down the road. I'm like, why didn't they just put it in a good looking car? <laughs> They'd probably sell more of them. Right. right. <laughs> um, That's a really good point. They are, they, it's, it, it's a, it's a great, um, I'm sure in a couple of years, it'll be a case study, uh, of, in business school it was like, how, how do these little startups outmaneuver these entrenched companies who were valued much more stock valuation, much more than the startups. And now the startups have greater value than all of those companies put together. Yeah. How did that happen? You know, wh where's the board of directors holding that management team accountable to even let that happen? And then what, what do they learn from it? And I think you know, common sense stuff you learn is once an organization gets so big, it's very difficult. You know, you have, very difficult to change directions like that. You have, uh, look at what Volkswagen did. Volkswagen had this strategic offsite a couple of days ago, three days where they uh, forced all these executives in a room, uh, eight hours a day, you know, socially distanced to brainstorm about what the future of vehicles would look like because they're grasping for straws. And it's not that they're dumb, they're incredibly smart people, but it takes a lot to move a big there's a lot of inertia in a big organization like Volkswagen or GM. There's a lot of entrenched interests, you know, in the people that make water pumps, the people that make all the stuff that goes away uh, in an electric vehicle. Right. Look at even the dealer network. I drive a, a Chevy Bolt. Um, I've, ne I've never taken my car to the dealer. My first maintenance is scheduled to be 150,000 miles, right? So the dealers aren't going to make any money on electric vehicles. So, you have to even rethink all of this. It's like, well, if you're making a product that doesn't need service or needs such little service that you can't support a dealer network, you have to put all of that on the table and be prepared to, to, to jettison what doesn't make that model work. And I think that's the growing, that's the pains that the big OEMs are going through right now. They're having the slow realization that so much of their model just does not work with electric vehicles. Yeah, the whole business model changes. Yeah. You think of it, you know, from the dealers to the service. And even, you know, I hadn't even thought about the, uh, the parts that go away from a combustion engine versus, you know, an electric vehicle, but yeah, like water pumps and radiators and, right. you know, um, a lot of that stuff just disappears. Right. And, and people making stuff, they have a financial interest to keep making stuff. And so they'll lobby and cajole and, and do everything they can to keep making that stuff. Cause that's how they put food on the table. So it's a, it's a lot of stuff to change for sure. Yeah. yeah. It's trying to, trying to steer an aircraft carrier on a. On a dime, right? Yeah, yeah. Not That's an easy task. task. No, <laughs> not at all. Awesome. Well, Steve, thanks so much for being on the show today. I think this is super cool to hear about your company and and your story. I mean, what a, what an incredible story. And I think there's a lot more coming on your story that's going to be fun to watch. So hey, I appreciate it. It's been great. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Armed and Ready podcast. If you have any questions um, about the episode you just saw, you can reach out to me at valoneguy.us.